0: Welcome to Spinning Out, I'm your host Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today we're talking about Greg Benick of the band's Trial and Between Earth and Sky. Greg is also a professional speaker. We talked about Iron Maiden's 1986 album Somewhere in Time and about how the band might have taught us more about literature and history than traditional schooling. Also, if you like what we do on the main feed, then please check out our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we talk about records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. Subscribe for as little as $1 a month and get an exclusive episode every week. It really sincerely helps us keep doing what we're doing, so check that out. Okay, no delays, let's chat with Greg.
1: Hey Greg, how's it going? It's going well, and that's kind of an exaggeration because I'm a little tired today, and I have been tired uh, for a few weeks now. I just kind of overworked and overdid it for a while and I'm in recuperation mode. So you're catching me at about, I don't know, I feel like, (laughs) I feel like 40% of norm, but, uh, we will see how it goes. And I'm sure that, uh, that's going to pick up a bit, meaning my energy level will improve as we talk about Iron Maiden today. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So we've been trying to like, kind of, I guess, triangulate would be the, you've been very busy is what I'm saying. I, I'm, uh, (laughs) yeah. it's ridiculous i'm vouching for you no yeah.
1: i appreciate that and it's ridiculous right we 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 get in modes where it is okay to say oh i've been so busy well so busy is is destructive it's not healthy it's 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 not even okay, really, to be so busy. So I'm in a mode right now where I'm winding back quite a bit and dialing it back quite a bit in order to to do what I've been calling radical self-care over the next few months, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm happy about that because you're right, we haven't even been able to carve out one hour of a conversation um worth of time from my life that's ridiculous that shouldn't be especially when we're going to be talking about something that we both love right why shouldn't we have been able to prioritize this better so i take full responsibility for that and the idea of being busy is overrated
0: yeah it's often not fun
1: yeah yeah uh so what we're talking
0: about today we're talking about iron maiden's album somewhere in time It came out September 29th, 1986. It's their sixth album and it was certified platinum. So what I'll ask is when was the first time you heard this album
1: or Iron Maiden in general? Okay, so I started listening to Iron Maiden when I was in high school and I'm old enough to say that uh, while I wasn't quite cognizant of Somewhere in Time coming out, I definitely was cognizant a year, I think, or two later, whenever it might have been, that uh, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son came out, which ultimately is the album we should be talking about (laughs) because that album is epic. Uh, Somewhere in Time comes very close, and it's almost like the the little brother or little cousin to uh, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. But I do remember Seventh Son of a Seventh Son coming out and being aware of it, but uh, not entirely into it or the band. I was more focused on the hair metal bands at the time. I was really into Rat and into Dokken and into um, uh, Motley Crue and and just Quiet Riot and whatever else was happening at the time. And for some reason, Iron Maiden, while I was aware of them and liked them, wasn't forefront in my mind enough for me to jump all over this record uh, the second it it came out. Um, And it might've just been my age too, meaning I was a little bit just barely, just maybe too young to, you know, be, yeah. be aware of it. And at the time too, when a record came out then, not to sound like I'm a dinosaur, but when the record came out then, you had to like get somebody to drive you to a record store and purchase the record or the C D as the case may be. So it was just it was just work, you know, it was just work. Yeah. Um okay, that said, Iron Maiden kind of exploded into my world shortly thereafter, though. So I missed this record coming out, but then caught the band uh, shortly thereafter and then sort of back cataloged my way back to the beginning and along the way found somewhere in time. Um, But when I say along the way, I came to this particular record later in the game, too. It was other records that caught my attention. And it wasn't until I was an Iron Maiden fan that I went back and said, hold on one second. I've been focusing on Seventh Son But Somewhere in Time is a slice of brilliance. Like, this record is fantastic. So I can't tell you exactly when, but it most definitely was a little bit later than it should have been because this record should have been top of the heap earlier on.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about when I got into this record. Um, And so, okay, so I had a weird similar thing about getting into, like, hair metal, but the reason I got into it was almost as, like, a thing to make my brother mad, because he was really into punk, and I was too, but I, I wanted to f- kind of forge my own identity, so I started buying, like, at that point, like, I would go to, like, Walmart or whatever it was, and get, like, power, you know, <laughs> it'd be, like, hairband classics or something at that point, you know, and then, so I was really into that, and it just, like, drive my brother crazy, like, but... I, you know, I also liked it, you know, I liked rat. I liked, you know, even like down to like winger and stuff like that. It was, it yes. was something like, it's like, I didn't land on it completely and I think I was going towards metal, but I was like, no, this is my personality. Uh, you know, some things like certain punk bands kind of like turn me off on liking punk. And I feel like I've, I've, I like them. A, I can understand them a little bit more now But things like exploited and whatnot, I was like, I don't understand this as a kid, you know? Right. Um, And so then kind of in that journey, uh, Brave New World was coming out. Mm. And I was like, what is this? Because I think it was like a friend that, you know, like we were watching skate videos and they also were like, I have this CD. And I was like, what is this? Because it kind of had that feeling of hair metal stuff. It does all the things, but it has so much more power to it. Then, so it almost feels like I discovered it when it came out because I was like having those same conversations around like punk and the hair metal. I guess it almost would have been different for a lot. It would have been hair metal into punk for a lot of kids, I guess, older than me. Sure. You know, so then that kind of led me, like you were saying, I didn't get into somewhere in time right away because I didn't even know where I would have listened to it at that point. You know, it was kind of like I had Brave New World because I had a friend gave it to me you know and that led to rock and rio and i believe the first iron maiden cd i ever bought was their 2003 album dance of
1: death oh wow this is but, really interesting okay this is yeah. an unusual iron maiden trajectory
0: yeah and then essentially another friend was like yeah it's cool you know you know about like rock and rio and dance of death but it was like you got to listen to somewhere in time and gave me their somewhere in time cd and by happenstance, and I feel like it fits perfectly. I had like a nineteen eighty four trans nineteen eighty four Trans Am, and I would just drive around blaring the somewhere in time, and it just
1: everything felt perfect. You are you are uh, like a, what's the <laughs> word like like not an icon like a uh, you're exact you were exactly listening to it exactly <laughs> as it was intended exactly. You
0: know? <laughs> yes, it felt everything felt right. Like I would. I was probably like 17 or 18 years old at that point when I finally got this. So it was a little later. Like I'd already had like little fads of things like, you know, it was like punk, then a little bit into this kind of stuff. But then I got into metalcore really heavy because just the time. Sure. And, but then it was like Iron Maiden kind of brought me back and that got me into like thrash and eventually kind of got me back into punk. So I, I, that long way of telling you that story of how I got into it in a way, like Somewhere in time, people say things like "it saved my life," but I think it put me on a path to like like music in like a better way. I like that. Know? I like that.
1: Yeah. And and I had I had a similar experience with um well I mean I mentioned Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. I think that that was the record that made me go wait a minute hold on one second who 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 what where what what, what are these guys doing what is this and I backdated to Power Slave before I found Somewhere in Time. And I think maybe it was just Power Slave and Seventh Son felt like records that were closer connected to me. So I just, maybe it was the album artwork and it just, I was drawn in that way. But I found I found Somewhere in Time and then found friends who were into Somewhere in Time. And we connected and it was at first about a very unlikely song on the record. We connected about the song Deja Vu and mm-hmm we we connected about it. and I could talk about individual songs on this record all day or I could talk about Deja Vu whatever whatever you'd like but I we connected about that song in particular and, and I was maybe 19 or 20 at the time and and that was when the light bulb went on for me about about this particular record and what Iron Maiden was doing in terms of at times as you said so well at times being a metal band like other metal bands but then yeah at times being like history teachers, like, and at other times being social commentators on, on mundane topics. Meaning, what band writes a song called Deja Vu? Meaning, they've written an epic song about a concept that's very human, and they've done it literally. Meaning, they haven't written an epic song about what deja vu means to all of us and we're in this time period and we feel like we've been here before. No, they're literally saying like, you know that feeling that you have, that you've been here before? Yeah. That's what this song is about. And, and it's, it's just like, how did they write a song about a completely mundane everyday topic, in a literal way. There's this thing called Deja Vu, it makes you feel like you've been here before, and do it in a way that makes me feel like I wanna scream the lyrics from a mountaintop. Like, how does that How does that work? Like, it's just like the whole time I'm listening to it, I'm like, this is, r- really? You're singing about Deja Vu? And at the same time, I'm like, hell yes, you're singing about Deja Vu, this is, this is just awesome. Uh, it's bizarre, and it caught my attention so well, and my friends and I would joke about it, thinking, Like, what if we tried to do that? I mean, only Iron Maiden can do that. What if I wrote a song called Forgetting to Tie Your Shoes, and the lyrics were like, have you ever tripped and fallen because you forgot to tie your laces? It wouldn't work. People would be like, this is utterly stupid. But Bruce Dickinson asked me if I've ever felt like I've been here before, and all of a sudden I want to cry and scream at the same time. Like, who are these iconic masters of metal it's just they do so much over the course of even just this record and then you go back and look at their other records and they're doing the same thing sometimes they're your high school history teacher and sometimes they're social commentators and sometimes they're just rocking out and i I think as i dove into this record you know between songs like you know you know caught somewhere in time and then uh deja vu and then alexander the great i mean take those three songs in and of themselves and you've got you know rocking metal commentary on the mundane and then you know history 101 it's just bizarre and incredible all at the same time
0: yeah like i was always a kid that was like into you know sci-fi and everything but there's so much stuff that i like, I didn't know, like, you know, Seventh Son was an Orson Scott Card novel. Like, I haven't read any of his books. Right. But, you know, it's like, I'm still learning things. I learned that today. You know, I was like, of course, it's based on, you know, and there's even things like when I started going to college, like, I knew the song Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. But then I when I started taking literature classes, I was like, and yeah, that's not on this record, obviously. But, sure. you know, I was like, Oh, that's what that's about. Because I I didn't know. I I just took it for what it was. Because there are certain times where they've created the story. Or at least when I was younger, a lot of times I was like, oh, uh, this is just a tale that they've made up.
1: But oftentimes they're regaling something. They are your history teachers, like you were saying. That's right. And I mean, you you take a concept, not to skip around between records, but a concept like Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. They present that on that record as if that's true that if you are the seventh son of someone who was the seventh son, that you'll have special powers. Okay, that's utterly <laughs> ridiculous. If you were and I start having seven kids today, and on the seventh son, we make sure that they start having seventh sons, we're not gonna sit around 50 years from now with the seventh son of a seventh son and be able to play clairvoyant games with that kid. That's not factually accurate. It might be mythologically, you know, and conceptually, an idea that's maybe true-ish in that storytelling fantasy world, but it's not accurate actual scientific fact that that's a thing you're going to you know it's just not that yeah. said they present it as if it is so i believe that it's true right and the same thing is true for some of their other their other songs as well where they're like well they present this as true and then as you said they've presented rhyme of the ancient mariner as if that's historically accurate but wait that's a a, a book reference but wait a minute what do we do about a song like alexander the great wait maybe they're all true and then you just get swept you get swept up in that and i mean again going back to just their talent which we've barely touched on yeah. listen to rhyme of the ancient mariner and again not to skip around on records name me one other band that can use the word albatross as a lyric like please yeah. come on now this is they get away with things that no one else can get away with because they're so literate and because they're so smart and so unbelievably talented and great songwriters and, and all of it. So yeah, basically the bottom line is if you want to learn about deja vu or history, mythology or fantasy, Iron Maiden's the place to go.
0: Yeah, there was uh, something I was also looking at with Alexander the Great. One of the ways, and I think it was just like online, but it said the title of the song and then it said the years that he was born.
1: <laughs> yeah, born and died. Yep. You know, and I'm like, who else? No one, would... no one. I mean, literally it's, it's, it's a high school history lesson. And, again, can you imagine, you know, we've mentioned other bands, can you imagine Rat or Dokken writing a history song? Like, what, are they going to have a song called The Union Army and it's about the Civil War? You know, it's just, you know, the song's called, you know, I don't even know, like, you know, Prohibition and it's going to be, or, or the Great Depression. But Iron Maiden could write that song and more. And the thing is, realistically, I didn't pay much attention in high school. I did okay, but I definitely wasn't, you know, valedictorian of my class, I learned a lot of history from Iron Maiden. I mean, listen to the song Alexander the Great. Read the lyrics to Alexander the Great. And this isn't a poetic approach to Alexander's life. It's like he's reading me a history book when I listen to the lyrics. It's like Bruce Dickinson is teaching us actual history by giving us dates and the names of battles and the names of kings and the names of conquests and doing it all at the same time as so i want to you know headbang and just get excited about a, a band it's yeah unbelievable no no other band no other band does this i mean bands you can yeah, try to but you, it's just not the same
0: you could be a fan of iron maiden and even not even realize that they're doing all of that because it goes down so smooth. I don't necessarily need to uh, I, I don't even need to get Alexander the Great out of it. It's just a good song. That's right. You know, like I feel like, you know, I've done another episode about Rush and as much as I appreciate them as a band, they will take you on a journey and I feel like you'll feel a lot of it. You know. So <laughs> And with Iron Maiden it's it's just like I don't I don't need that to
1: like it. Two things, two things. One, Rush is my favorite band of all time. We won't get started talking about Rush today (laughs) because we will totally misdirect your podcast episode. Uh, But two things about Rush. One is that uh, tomorrow, today is uh, the 19th of May, 2022. Tomorrow, or maybe the day after tomorrow, actually the, the day after tomorrow, Saturday, Alex Lifeson is selling his guitar collection at auction in New York City. Look up Julian's auctions, and if people are listening oh, to this yeah. after the fact, look up Julian's auctions and look through their auction archives. If you're listening to it after the fact, of course, um, for Alex Lifeson's sale in New York City, he's selling all of his guitars. It's absolutely wow, that's amazing, insane. But this, and the second thing is, you're absolutely right. Like, there's a band that can take you on a journey like that. Um, Iron Maiden does it just in a different way. Like, while certainly Neil Peart was inspired by uh, Ayn Rand and books like Anthem and The Fountainhead earlier on with records, you know, around the era of 2112. Iron Maiden just keeps going and going and going. And I mean, on the record that we're talking about today, you know, we've mentioned Alexander the Great, but I mean, and, you know, you mentioned, you know, songs and other records that were inspired by authors. But I mean, track six on this record is Stranger in a Strange Land. Uh, that's a book title, um, you know. Uh, track five, loneliness of a long distance runner. These are literary references, and uh, it's it's just consistent with them that their badassery, and I don't say that as an empty compliment, but it's it, their badassery, like just seeps through this record and all their other records as well. And what I mean is that they were willing to be nerds and come across as that they weren't. Whereas Rush was unapologetically nerdy. They're just like, listen, yeah. we are we are total nerds. I mean, Kiss tells stories of being on tour with them in the early 70s and the mid-70s where Kiss was going out and just, you know, doing all the things that 70s rock bands would do at night. And they would go knock on Rush's hotel room door and Rush would be in their hotel rooms reading, you know, after the show, like just <laughs> reading books, right? Uh, Gene Simmons tells stories about that in interviews. And Paul Stanley too and just how they were just like a gas like who are these guys they were unapologetically just we are nerds but Iron Maiden are nerds who come across like they're not and that's what's fascinating to me that we can get these historical and get these literary references all throughout their records especially on somewhere in time and at the end of listening to it not realize that we've been learning and been talked to because you're right Alexander the Great It's just a great song. It's just a great song. It's also an eight and a half minute long epic on history, but it's just a great, great song. Yeah.
0: And it's like I had seen like Blade Runner by that point. But I feel like kind of putting this together with this and some of the references they make. And kind of another thing with doing research on this record, I didn't realize there was a TARDIS on the cover, you know, the Doctor Who like you know, it's like there's so much stuff loaded up in the album art um that Derek Riggs did that you can spend so much time I mean you may have done that you know like kind of looking for the reference you know that's either a reference to Iron Maiden's early history or like so much other sci-fi things that you could take in you know it's insane with that
1: it's, it's, yeah. it's awesome. And that's one thing that I've... Um, oh, and I just want, remembered one other Rush thing I wanted to tell you real quick, which is kind of fun. But, <laughs> um, but, but you're right about the Iron Maiden album art. One of the things that I've thought about doing over the years, and I have never done this, and I haven't looked at the Somewhere in Time album art as closely as you have, is I've thought about, I should really just get a poster, you know, an album cover art poster for each of these records and have them up all over my place or at least sit and analyze the cover art because they're just so amazing. The art is incredible and there's the conceptualization of Eddie as this recurring theme. I mean, again, who gets to have that? But the Rush story I was going to tell you is very quick. That A very dear friend of mine is connected to record labels and people in the music industry and uh, called me last week and said, hey, can I send you something in the mail? I was like, sure. And he asked my address, I gave him my address. A box arrives a couple days later and I open it up and inside there's a copy of uh, Rush Moving Pictures, just had a 40th anniversary and there was this half speed mastered LP set that came out and that's in the box. I'm like, wow, uh, thank you to my friend. He owns a record store and came across it, I'm sure. And then I take that out of the box and underneath there's something else wrapped up and I open it and it's a copy of Rush, all the world's a stage autographed by all three members of the band in a frame in a frame and I called my friend and I said what is this what am I holding in my hand like I couldn't even speak he's like oh yeah I, I know the president of Universal Music Group or whatever and blah 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 he had some signed albums that he gave to me and I said tell me right now on 20 years of friendship that you did not promise me that you did not take a sharpie and write these names on this record because I'm losing my mind right now. He's like, no, 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 this is 100% authentic. I knew that no one else in the world would enjoy it as much as you, so it's a gift. And I honestly put it on the wall of my place in Seattle and I sat there and I stared at it, I think for hours. I mean, I was just, I can't get over it. I can't, can't get over it now. It's not a copy of Somewhere in Time autographed by all the members but um all the members of Iron Maiden are still alive so there's still a possibility that you or I could come across a uh, treasure like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, do you do you happen to have like a lot of things like that or is that even like, you I, know, I don't.
1: I wish I did. Okay. You know, I mentioned yeah. Alex Lifeson's guitars before, sort of cavalierly, as if I'm going to be at the auction or bidding, but there's I'm not. I mean, you know, the guitar. <laughs> That's the, what I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. The, the guitar. I think he calls it Old Whitey or Whitey. His um, uh, his guitar that he he's played over decades is is for sale. And last I checked, it was ninety thousand dollars. I mean, this is not okay. in the realm of, yeah. you know, like the, the, yeah. the guitar he used on Closer to the Heart is. You know, Alex Lifeson's guitar is, is up for auction. These are not things that most people can access. So I just I just love the fantasy and the idea of such collectibles, but I don't own them. But That's what made this Rush record when it arrived even more impressive from my friend Jerry. I just, it just shocked me and it still has me shocked. But yeah, so maybe that should be our our goal is to track down the members of Iron Maiden and just have them sign a copy of Somewhere in Time and just be like, listen, we learned history because of you. Not because of our high school history teachers, not because of college, but because of metal. That's why we're educated.
0: Yeah, a little, I guess my own little detour, I work in collectibles, uh, but I don't have that many myself. Um, So I'll see certain auctions and I'll see, you know, kind of things. And my boss who has a lot more money than me, you know, will be like, oh, look at this. But, you know, there's a point where you're like, well, I I like that you're showing me, you know, Michael Jackson's original jacket, but it it means it really ends up meaning nothing to you because like a $90,000 guitar, it's like. You know, if someone's like, "Oh, uh, you can bid on Eddie." You know, you're like, "I I want to watch this to its completion, but I will never own however much that costs." You know, <laughs> so there's a kind of disconnect where it's just like, "Well, I'd like to know, but." It's never coming home with me. Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
1: And the thing is, it's it's fun just to, to imagine. I've not gotten into the realm of Iron Maiden collectibles on that level, but I'm sure <laughs> that it's going to happen one of these days. I mean, Rush broke up, you know, essentially a couple of years ago after Neil's death, unfortunately, and um, you know that's why these things are up for auction but one of these days there's going to be an iron maiden auction there's no doubt about it and and all the people who grew up with the band fanatical about them are going to be bidding like wild and hopefully you and i will have won the lottery by then and we will be you know bidding on nico mcbrain signed drum heads and bruce dickinson you know aviator goggles and whatever whatever else we've got you yeah know?
0: there's got to be like either a warehouse or warehouses of those things, because I've thought about the, and I think I've talked to people about it, but essentially, if you tour, well, for them, since they're not a U.S. band, it's like, where does where do all those props go when they're done with the tour? Yeah. You know, I it's mean. like, they don't destroy them, or if they do, that seems strange. They go into a warehouse and they might use pieces of it for... Maybe we'll do this album again, you know, you know, power slave kind of reunion thing or whatnot. You know, so it's like crazy thinking about the fact that like almost like scenes in like Indiana Jones. It's like there are warehouses with, you know, somewhere in town, somewhere in time, like backdrops and whatnot.
1: There, there have to be there. They have yeah. to be somewhere. And I mean, where do they put their plane when they're not flying it? I mean, the, <laughs> right? Where's Ed Force One? I mean, there's a, there's a plane that exists that, what, do they park that on their street? Do they park that at an airport? Where does that plane reside when they're not flying it around the planet? I mean, I have no idea where they keep their props, but you're right. How do we get access to that? I and mean, that's that's what I want to yeah. know.
0: Yeah, like its own like docu-series of like, them going through the catalog
1: of it, you know? That would be fascinating. It would just be un- <laughs> unbelievable. I, yeah. I recently, not to change topics, but I recently saw Bruce Dickinson do a spoken word set in Seattle. Uh, some friends mm-hmm. and I went down to, to see him and it was pretty interesting that, you know, he, he did about two and a half hours, I think, of wow. stand up comedy, essentially. <laughs> it wasn't as much, what I wanted from it and what it was were different. And it doesn't mean that what it was was bad, it just wasn't what I expected. And what it was, was stand-up comedy. And he was making jokes about Jeffrey Epstein, and he's making jokes about everything in the world, like a social commentator. What I wanted him to do was walk out on stage with a microphone and say, Good evening, anybody have any questions? And then all the Iron Maiden heads in the audience would raise their hands with questions and he would just answer them. It all was very, very scripted, Um, but overall it um, it it was still pretty interesting and pretty... Cool to see this guy out of context in a way, doing funny commentary and telling Iron Maiden tour stories at times and historical band references and, and, and going through that. It was pretty interesting to see. Uh, and it made me wish that other people would do the same thing, meaning I would gladly pay to see Getty Lee Spoken Word or, you know, for that matter, you know, Stephen Piercy from Rat Spoken Word or Nikki Six or whomever, you know, whoever our yeah. icons are. And, uh, it was it was fascinating. Just the fact that he did it was was pretty cool.
0: Did you get to ask any specific questions about, or did people get to ask like their kind of one question, like I don't know, like where do you keep Eddie? Yeah, I mean, yes, <laughs> like did people get to?
1: Yes and no. Yes, no, I didn't. Yes, people did. But I wonder how pre-planned some of those answers were. Meaning, there was a table in front when you walked in that where you could write down your questions and you could submit them and then he was seemingly supposedly going through those backstage and answering some of those questions. I got the sense that some of them were pre-planned. I'm not sure and I talked to people who saw him on other nights of the tour and they said that there was different questions. So maybe they weren't pre-planned. It's just his answers were so well scripted and it could very well be that some questions come up again and again and again, right? So I'm not sure, but there were some audience questions. I just, I honestly wanted it to be more freeform with people literally in the audience raising their hands and a night of Q and A with Bruce Dickinson. In the same way that Ian Mackay does these Q and A events where he literally walks out on stage and says, good evening, does anyone have any questions? And then three hours later, the evening is done. After people have asked him a hundred and one questions about Fugazi and Minor Thread and you know everything and uh, Discord records and whatnot, I wanted I wanted Bruce Dickinson to follow in the footsteps of Ian McKay. I, thought, I think that would be a, a much more effective tour.
0: <laughs> and if anyone could kind of pander to the crowd, it would be him. Oh yeah, Bruce Dickinson yeah. can work a crowd. So he I feel like answering people's questions and making it you know a thing.
1: Yeah. Well, and cause, That's... yeah, because here's another thing is that if you listen, you you know you mentioned uh, rock and Rio. If you listen to enough Iron Maiden bootlegs, and the one thing that I do collect, and I, there's no f- physical reference of them, I, I at this point I, I've downloaded and ripped them sometimes from old CDs yeah. and even cassettes, is is bootleg shows. I, I get just wild about them. Specifically, I mean Rush. I've got hundreds. But there's a good handful of Iron Maiden ones. And if you listen to Iron Maiden shows, not even ones that have been officially released, but shows just your run-of-the-mill everyday show, not necessarily, you know, Rock in Rio or whatever, but, you know, Iron Maiden in Toledo, um, yeah. whatever, he's funny. He's genuinely funny on stage. And 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 so that is to support the idea of him doing this stand-up comedy thing, because he works the crowd, and he's funny, and he works them well, and he definitely knows how to uh, tell a joke, tell a story, and he's quite good at it. So um, I would recommend that people dive into um, the Iron Maiden back catalog of live shows if you can just, and there's tons on YouTube, just look around and you'll find them. And He's quite entertaining. He definitely is.
0: Yeah, I, I'm always like afraid to kind of look too hard on like the personalities of the older rock bands that I like, because I don't want to find out something, you know. But I don't think I've heard anything that kind of like gives me pause, you know. Like I, I know I'd still come out of it an Iron Maiden fan still, but I'm like I don't want to. I'm like I don't want to know if he's, you know, bad in some way, you know. Yeah. In quotes and and I'm sure
1: yeah. that I'm sure that I mean everyone everyone who would who would dive into their they're uh, rock star hero icons from the 70s or 80s. I'm sure is going to find some level of illicit drug use and just ridiculous, awful something or other somewhere along the way. Uh, but no, I too haven't heard anything about the members of Iron Maiden that would that would give me pause enough to think that they're evil people. Um, yeah. And maybe that's just hopeful. I mean, but you know, it all depends on what yeah. your evil is, right? I'm sure that... They eat meat. I'm vegan. Is that going to offend yeah. me You know enough to not listen to the band anymore? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure they drank. I don't drink. Is that going to make me not want to listen to the band anymore? I mean, probably yeah. not. I mean, in fact, definitely not. I'm still going to be, you know, rocking out to all these records over time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was um, also one thing that was interesting is kind of like how they went into this record. I think it was like they, they did a huge tour off of the previous record. I think it was like 330 days, like mm-hmm. 187 shows uh, was what they played. So they were exhausted. So up to this point, this was the first record that didn't like come out the next year. Right. You know, and then what they did first for what I was reading is like Bruce Dickinson presented songs. And it seemed like they were like, no, we're not doing these. Because it sounded like he wanted to do almost like an acoustic record or just one that was like different vibe than the previous ones which I think they accomplished but not in the way that I think that he wanted Uh, and I think that's where he started like kind of bringing songs like well that ends up later but like bring your daughter to the slaughter so I wonder how many of those songs kind of had like an acoustic kind of early thing that you know so I don't know if you know anything about that, like the genesis of kind of going into somewhere in time.
1: I, I don't. I mean, I know a bit about the fact that they did um, the the tour. It was on uh, the Power Slave was the was the album that came out before this, and I can't remember the name. What was the name of the, that world tour? There was some immense tour. I mean, the immense tour that you, you mentioned, it, it had a name yeah. in and of itself, but, but yes, I do remember hearing that they were exhausted after, after playing whatever it was, you know, a year's worth of shows. Uh, I didn't yeah. know about the acoustic versions, and I'd be very curious to hear about that. Well, I mean, it's true of any band, right? You're going to play demo versions of songs, and in my mind, Iron Maiden is brilliant enough to say, hmm, we should do a record. Let's start off with this song. And then they just write it like in the studio that day. They don't rehearse it. They don't, you know, practice it. They don't have demos. They just create it on the, on the fly and what we're listening to is the live recordings of their jam session because they're that brilliant but that's not the way it works right the way it works is that somewhere along the line someone had a riff and came to the other members of the band who built on that riff who added a part who created a lyric who created a song and, and that sort of thing and these hap- these things happen over time and over process but I haven't heard anything about the the songs that were part of the process or the versions of the songs that were part of the process that'd be fascinating to hear.
0: Yeah, I am trying to think of what reference it was, but it was something like that had happened. I think on, well, actually I do remember he wanted it to be almost their physical graffiti. Wow. Like, yeah, that's what he's been quoted as kind of saying, like, that's what he envisioned, like kind of show people another side of us so that people won't just expect us to kind of put out the same type of gallopy, you know. Uh, new wave of british heavy metal type thing yeah like they then that sort of allows them to kind of go back and you know and i don't know if they've really i guess they've been able to do that and i think that this record kind of pushed it in a way that probably he wasn't he wasn't thinking in that direction and i think when they put it together like put he also said that no band that he's in will have synth in (laughs) it That's is awesome. what he was quoted as saying. Awesome. Like, there was like a video of it. And, you know, it's not like they're playing keyboards, but they use like guitar synth pedals. And it's obviously all throughout this record. So I sure. think that's kind of funny if it's like that's like a weird band tension in a way. And you're like, oh, you said we're not going to have synth? Because they do have those kind of dynamics that they're kind of often button heads you know, with him specifically.
1: Yeah. And and this is interesting, and not to, you know, again, we're not diverting to Rush, but Rush had the same conversation. You know, when they put out um, uh, Grace Under Pressure, this was this was a moment in time, and uh, we're, we're on that particular record and on other records at the time where there was a conflict between guitar and electronics. Do we use synth? Do we use guitar? So I'm not surprised to hear that Iron Maiden went through the same process because other bands like Rush were going through the same thing at the same time because that's where music was headed music was headed at the time towards synth and electronic sounds and traditional guitarists didn't want probably any part of that because they feared as though they would be replaced but i want to comment on something that you mentioned a a few minutes ago where Bruce Dickinson came in saying that he wanted this record to be like physical graffiti or another physical graffiti i'm not sure how you Mm. worded it Think about that for a second. Yeah. If you and me and three of our most talented friends get together this afternoon and we start a band, would we have the balls to say, let's have our record be like one of the greatest rock records in history? Let's just do that and mean it. That's pretty that's pretty intense. Like if you and me and three of our most talented friends got together and said, oh yeah, we wanna sound like Motley Crue on Shout at the Devil, that's one thing. We wanna sound like them. But what if we said, we want this record that we create to be one of the greatest rock records in history and mean it. That says a lot about your guts. And I mean, this record, think about this record. It starts off with Caught Somewhere in Time, This is a seven and a half minute long song to start the record. Who starts their record with a song that's seven and a half minutes long? I mean, what balls? Like you have to have confidence through the roof to say, we're going to start a record with a song that's seven and a half minutes long. And the audience is not only just going to listen, they're going to love it. You have to have such confidence in your ability and talent as a band to, to do something like that. I mean, can yeah. you imagine you and me forming a band today yeah. and having a seven and a half minute song to start a record? It would be a disaster. Like three minutes, no one would listen past three minutes. It would be over. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's like I feel like we know types of bands. Like what I think of when I think of like starting a record with like a seven minute long song. I I do think of like Neurosis, you know, which is like a good example of it. But I also think of like. I feel like lungfish would do it, but they're they're often doing that as a conflict to the audience, and we're not, you know. And so, if you're a certain type of person, you want that, but not in the same sense as like
1: Iron Maiden, right? Because you know, like yeah. Iron Maiden is writing for a totally different audience. I mean, yeah, you know, Sleep, the band Sleep, has come out on stage before and said, "Hello, we're Sleep. This is our last song," and then played Dope Smoker, and that's their whole set. Okay, yeah. and I would, I would clamor my way through whatever it took to get into that room to see that that happen, right? Because I love that band. I love that record. And, um, but but Iron Maiden's writing for a different audience. Sleep mm-hmm. is writing for an audience, you know, who 30 minutes in are going, wow, man, this riff's pretty cool. And it's the same riff that's been playing over yeah. and over again. And yeah. in fact, I've got a funny story. I was out with a friend of mine years ago in Seattle one night, and we were getting... Uh, I think it was vegan ice cream somewhere on on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And uh, she's not into metal at all. And we're standing there and in the distance, we hear um, a band playing. And she's like, is that band playing the same riff over and over again? And I was like, yeah and then i went oh my god that's sleep and i ran with her and she's like what is happening we ran to this venue which was down the street and i knew the the people who were um, uh, in charge of security and they had the door open and i watched this like the second half of the set through the door through the door and uh, it was indeed sleep playing the same riffs over and over and over again the point is is that their audience will endure that and, you know, you mentioned Lungfish, and these, you know, if, if we're getting into stoner rock and and, and sort of a, more kind of a doom metal, I mean, sure, a band like Amon Rock can get away with writing epic yeah. songs, but their audience is different, and the time is different, and the historical placement of Iron Maiden is different. In 1985, six, what have you, they were mm-hmm. they were part of the metal scene, and they were part of a commercial metal scene who were writing shorter songs. There wasn't a sleep dope smoker um, you know, coming out at the same time as uh, Shout at the Devil and at the same time as um, Invasion of Your Privacy by Rat. and You know, there was not these epic-length songs coming out all the time. The tendency was towards more commercial songs, at least the way I remember it. So to have a record with like an eight-minute song and a couple seven-minute songs and a six-minute song is like, I, I just, I think it shows just a confidence in one's own abilities to be able to, to, to be able to create music of of that magnitude and that kind of epic length that just I mean and they deserve it too they have that skill and that that ability for sure
0: yeah i mean this record i said it at the top but like this went platinum so this is clearly written in a way to like get on the radio you know and like to get to people's ears you know it's like sleep is doing it in conflict <laughs> you know and like yeah. one kind of sleep story i saw them and i i tweeted kind of at them, not expecting them to answer. And I said, because, you know, like when you're playing a show and the sound guy will be like, turn down, turn down, you know, we can get you on the monitors. But it's like, who has anyone ever told Sleep to turn down? Oh, I don't think that, And that I they responded, that, yeah. though, and they were like, well, we can't hear them. That's what I <laughs> said. It was the best answer. And I never, so why would they respond to me? And it was really funny. Um, so, but, you know, so that's even kind of going back to Iron Maiden. It's like they're not in conflict with their audience, you know, Iron Maiden wants you to be there in a way. Iron Maiden is like putting on a show in the yeah. old fashioned way of putting on a, on a show. Like this is meant for the biggest stage and the biggest lights and all of those things. So yeah, to start a record with a seven and a half minute long song is very ballsy. Yeah, yeah. it is.
1: And, and, and they're also, they're writing songs on this record, which are meant for the arena. They know where they are. They know what their market is. You said it very well. These they're writing for ears. They're writing for people to hear this, and they are writing songs that are intended to be um, sing-alongs. I mean, they're you know they're literally entitled. In in, you know they're 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 writing songs that are in um, that are intentionally. For arenas. I mean listen to a song called you know like like heaven can wait for example not called. that yeah. listen to heaven can wait and I mean that whoa whoa like they didn't write that thinking oh this will be fun if we sing this on stage. No they're yeah. writing that thinking this will be fun if 30,000 people sing that with us when we're on stage and that's exactly what happened. I mean it's the ultimate it's the ultimate sing-along song in a way and and Iron Maiden is great at that they especially Bruce Dickinson and the way that you said you know he captures an audience you know I mean there's some live versions of Fear of the Dark where he's just he just his control and command over the audience where he just will say you and the audience knows that it is their turn to all in unison take on the vocal duties for the next 20 seconds or so his command of the audience is very powerful but the band knows that that's the trajectory of of this record, that it's going to be played in arenas before immense audiences.
0: Yeah, like we've either, uh, I guess I'll speak for you, we've either played the shows or, you know the shows you'll play where maybe you want some interaction, but that's not happening that night? To kind of like build something into your songs to get the interaction and then you achieve it is also so insane. I know they had a lot to prove it by this point, but still, I feel like every record I go into, you know, like making, I'm like, this might be the last one. But in this one, you're like, well, this might make us the biggest band. And maybe they have those insecurities, but it doesn't feel it from uh, writing. And I think I'm commenting back to what you're saying. Like, when you kind of write something with the purpose of it is a strange thing. Because it's like, when I start writing music, it's, it's going to be whatever it's going to be when it comes out. But it's like, to kind of know where you're headed... And achieve that in unison because though there's so many you know a few people writing on this record i feel i can't i can't pick out who is this a, you know like a steve harris song is this an adrian smith song you know like it just all feels in unison and what i'm getting to is like adrian smith also bro- brought in like complete songs for this record so i'm assuming he like brought in lyrics because i think they do that often like they'll Kind of fashion lyrics for, uh, you know, Bruce Dickinson. How, do you know if that's actually true or not? I'm
1: not sure. I'm not sure if it is. I mean, not to bring up Rush again, but I will. Um, you know, Rush made a made a career out of that. I mean, Geddy Lee didn't yeah. write any lyrics. Uh, Neil wrote basically every lyric to every song, except for a couple that he wrote in in collaboration with other people. But, um, I can only imagine that they come in with lyrics in Iron Maiden for Bruce as well. I'm not sure. That might be worth tweeting yeah. at the end.
0: <laughs> we'll see what they say yeah um because i think that they do because they when you look at a lot of their credits they kind of credit in an old-fashioned way where it's like the person who wrote it and if anyone helped then their name's also included you know but like there are certain songs on here where it's like you know caught somewhere in time is written by steve harris and then adrian smith wrote wasted years like and you know so kind of down the line like it's mostly them until you get to, like, Dave Murray helped Steve Harris with Deja Vu. So that's, like, the only explicit credit he right. has on the record. Yeah. So, so
1: you're, you're suggesting that maybe they both, uh, they, they like, for example, on Deja Vu, that Murray and Harris might very well have said, hey, Bruce, here's a song topic. It's called Deja Vu. It's Deja Vu. And here's the lyrics we wrote for you, that maybe they wrote lyrics for him. I guess that's distinctly mm-hmm. possible.
0: I, I think so, because, I mean, a lot of what I feel like is pretty well known. Like this is the band has been like Steve Harris's baby, like yes. for, for the most part. Yeah. That's what I you understand know. Too. And, and on this documentary, this short documentary on YouTube, I was watching, they kind of, when they started writing so much as record, kind of without Bruce Dickinson, cause they kind of rejected his songs. They talk about it very nicely now, <laughs> you know, they were like, Bruce was very, uh, worn out after that tour you know so we kind of like gave him time it's how they say it i'm like that's very polite (laughs) yeah you know because it because in another way it's like he brought stuff to us and we hated it but that's you know and so i think like the notion was that adrian smith kind of had to step up and bring songs in because they wanted to move forward because they were rejecting anything that Bruce Dickinson
1: brought in. Well, that's interesting, yeah. and, and your point your point's you know pretty fascinating and well taken about the fact that you can't tell the difference between the songs. This isn't like, you know, where, where different vocalists are singing. Like for example, in a band like Alkaline Trio, where sometimes hmm. you know the songs are sung by one person or another, and you can quite easily tell. You certainly can't tell who wrote what on this album. I mean, you certainly can't. And I would suggest if if you're able to that if you could post a link when you post this. Uh, podcast episode to that mini documentary that you're referring to it might be good for people to watch that um so they yeah. get some context
0: i mean if also anyone listening if they can point out certain things that can show that they know that this person wrote the song i can't hear it you know, yeah <laughs> so and, and that's, i'd love to know that's you know, one caveat
1: yeah that's one caveat we should put in there that i mean i'm i can't speak for you but i'm certainly not the ultimate audiophile examiner scientist of iron maiden i i love the band passionately but there are people out there who undoubtedly could hear connections you know i mean i can listen to the loneliness of the long distance runner and say oh wow the beginning of that song sort of forecasts the style of seventh son of a seventh son but i'm just hearing that and making that audio connection i can't tell you as an expert that this is true because of this chord progression or that note being played here and that sort of thing. So yeah, if there's people who know more about Iron Maiden, please let us learn from you uh, and yeah. you know put it in the proverbial comments. Cause we want to know everything we can about this record.
0: Yeah. I'm not, I, well, I would struggle to say I'm a musician. I do play an instrument in a band, but like I don't like going out there and being like, I'm a musician. So I don't feel like I hear things that way. And also I feel like I have so much of a, emotional attachment to this band and to this album specifically, I'm probably missing certain things because you almost like, when you like, I feel like when I got into like punk, when I think about like Operation Ivy or whatever it was that I got into, you almost have so much of an attachment. You can't even explain it, you know, like, and it's it happens with this. Like I don't, it's like gone in my head and it's like made, it's like built into my DNA of who I am. <laughs> So I can't really tell you what, how DNA works. That's how it feels
1: that, like listening to this That makes sense to, me. Makes sense yeah. to me. Even last <laughs> night, as I was, I was, I was listening to it again, just as, just to enjoy it before we we spoke today. I realized just how, you know, you worded it so well when you said it's part of your DNA. Like I feel that about this and about Power Slave and about Seventh Son of the Seventh Son. Um, you know, all three of those records are just nonstop. You know, front to back bangers of records. Just just impossible to penetrate in any way um, with any negative critique, uh, song by song or record over or, or album overall. And as I was listening to this last night, I was just like, the second caught somewhere in time comes on and you're just swept up in the album from the very start of the album and the album doesn't let up until the end. There's not one Mm -hmm. moment on this record where you think, ah, I'm gonna skip this track. You don't get to skip the middle of the record and Heaven Can Wait and Loneliness the Long Distance Runner. You can't, because you're not going to, because every song is awesome. And as the record started last night, I'm excited and I'm driving down the highway and I'm listening to Caught Somewhere in Time and I got so swept up in it that I I started to sing along and, you know, I can sing hardcore, hooray for me. Like, I mean, who cares? That and, you know, as the the saying goes, that and and four bucks buys me a a latte or whatever. You know what I mean? Who cares? It's worthless fact. But the point is, is that I started to sing and if you want to try to sound like a total ass, Uh, Try to sing along, sincerely sing along to the chorus of Caught Somewhere in Time. Just try it. I mean, for the more talented amongst us, you'll be able to do it, but I certainly can't. There's no possible way. And I'm just in awe as I'm driving down the highway, squawking because I can't hit the notes. Um, I'm just in awe of how amazing Bruce Dickinson is, you know, I mean all the things that he does and here I am just going to fanboy idolize the guy but I mean you know an olympic level fencer and a 747 pilot yeah. <laughs> and a historian and a singer and not just each of those things but awesome at each of those things and that shines through on this record and from the start of the record uh from the from the chorus of caught somewhere in time where he's just he's just belting it out and hitting these notes and again if you want to try it to sound completely silly go go sing along with that and actually try to hit the notes and yeah. uh good good luck i mean
0: it's like a drawn out note and it goes up like yeah. that's time you know and that's about time. as you know yeah it's on. like it keeps kind of going up and it's insane and i saw them i think it was 2018 and i had never seen them before uh but you know so it's like big stage uh sure. the opener for the show was uh ghost and i they saw played, that yeah, yeah they played uh it was like daylight still when they played just the nature of it so i'm like ah oh, you know you kind of feel bad for the because you know it feels so far in the distance but when iron maiden came on of course it was night you know but it's like though they were like fields away from me you know it just felt right there like in my memory of seeing that show and i went to it kind of like thinking i was going to be a naysayer like oh i'm going to see this band like way too many years past the point that i should have seen them you know but no (laughs) like they run around the stage like not letting up and that you know the set like in my mind i feel like i saw them at like a 200 person club yeah i agree in my memory of it you know
1: I, I saw what I think was the first night of that tour in Virginia. Uh, my parents live about two and a half hours away from where that show was. And I coordinated a trip to see my parents with that show happening. I bought tickets for the show and then called my parents and said, hey, can I come visit? And they were like, yeah, of course. So I flew to the East Coast. I went to see my parents and I was there for a day and then I was like, listen, I got to go away tonight. You know, I. I'll be back yeah. late, kind of thing. Like I've I was done that to my dad a lot. Exactly right. And I drove. I drove, <laughs> I drove um, to the show, and I was there very early, like maybe I don't know four or five hours before the show. And I was, you know, kind of outside where they, you know, had accepted your tickets, but not yet opened the doors to the, you know, the 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 grounds, as it were. And when they opened those doors, I sprinted like like there was no tomorrow, to get up close to the stage. And there were people who were, you know, ahead of me in the pack, right? But um, I'm going to send you the photo I took that night of Iron Maiden on stage that captured the band as they were playing. And it's quite a quite a good picture. And you could maybe post it along with the podcast episode. But I agree with you that, um, you know, that was ghost... At, I mean, Ghost, I like Ghost, but that was Ghost at the height of their commercial popularity, um, you know, at the time was for yeah. that tour. And they were entertaining and they were a great opener yeah. for Iron Maiden. But when Iron Maiden came out, it was unreal. I mean, you're, you worded it again, you worded it well again when you said it was like seeing him in a 200 capacity club, like seeing a band that was hungry for it, you know, a band that had not just played 5000 shows over 30 years or whatever they've played this was as if a band was playing because they knew they might get signed if they played well that was the the intensity and the passion with which they played that night and I was just—I mean, I—I'm—I'm I'm happy to admit I stood there like crying half the show, like while I'm singing along and laughing at the same time. It's just—it feels like this just like multi-level emotional experience for me to see this band. But I'll send you the picture, and uh, we can yeah. have that on deck for for folks who are listening to this.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like if you if you had to,
1: can you pick a favorite song from this record? I'm—I would go. Okay, it's very hard to say because Caught Somewhere in Time is such an awesome awesome opener and bruce dickinson is both i mean he is he is um uh how do i want to word it like he's 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 savage and melodic with this incredible vocal range and and the bass sound i mean come on like the bass is so present in the mix and the bass gallop is there it's got everything and then i mean it's got excitement you know when that up tempo part comes in early on and it's it's awesome but I'm gonna go with Deja Vu. And it's for, the re- it's for the reasons that I said before that every time I listen to it, I think to myself, how are you getting away with this? How are you getting away with being so literal and singing about something so directly and so literally that is so mundane and making me wanna sing along like my life depends on it? I mean, it's just it's just a priceless song. I love that song so much. Again, it's hard to say cuz I mean Alexander the Great is a cool song and there's lots of cool songs on this record and great songs I should say on this record, that being one of them, but Déjà vu I'm going to say is my uh, is is my favorite if I had to only listen to one. How about how about you? Yeah. Uh Heaven Can Wait. Nice choice. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that track I, I'm not, track 4 on the record? That's the fourth song. Yeah, right? track yeah. 4. Yep. Yeah.
0: And I, I don't know, it's just always kind of stuck with me in a way that I can't even articulate cuz really I could just then look to the next song and be like, you know, Loneliness is my favorite. You know, it's like you could pick any one on it. Sure. And I always make a comment, I feel like, on every episode about kind of how long records can be. But when I listened to this record, I actually had to look at it because I was like, this is actually a short record. I, I thought to myself. And then I saw it was 51 Minutes, which isn't like strange for the time. No. But I, to me, to talk about like Rush again... Good. Like, I think Moving Pictures is under 40 minutes, I believe. Might like, it's be. not actually that long of a record. Somewhere in Time feels as long as Moving Pictures does, and they're both amazing records. You know, like, I don't feel like there's a point in listening to Somewhere in Time where I'm like, I'll pick this up later. Like, when I right. started, it's, 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 I'm going to finish it.
1: Yeah. And, that, and <laughs> that's what I meant, too, that, you know, you, you start off with, um, you know, you know, caught somewhere in time and then immediately you're into Wasted Years and then you're into Sea of Madness and the opening riff with the with the bass, you know, the kind of slap in the bass to make another somewhat obscure kind of, you know, Rush reference. Um, but, you know, you you're, you know, the, the slap in the bass. Um, this is the moment where, you know, you're three songs in, you're on Sea of Madness, and this is the moment where you go, oh, my gosh, this record is going to rule. And, you know, yeah. usually the band opens with, not the band meaning Iron Maiden, but a band will open with the hit, and then the songs that follow the hit are like, eh, they're okay. This is yeah. an iconic record to this day because track one, awesome. Track two, awesome. Track three, see a Madness, awesome. And then we're into your favorite song, you know, Heaven Can Wait, track four. Yeah. And then forget about it. You're halfway through the record and you're on a journey that feels like it's been five minutes long, but you're already, you know, 28 minutes or whatever it is and 25 minutes into a record that it's just going to keep going and keep going and keep going all the way through the end of your history lesson with Alexander the Great.
0: Yeah. And with that, all that said, all the platitudes we're giving it, why do you feel, do you feel, why do you feel like this isn't? The record people point to.
1: Well, I, you know, I, I said it at the start, I made that joke saying, "Oh, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son." That's the record we should be talking about, right? Because that's the one that captured my attention early on. I think, or you know, early on mm-hmm. in my Iron Maiden fandom. But I think that you know, when people think of Iron Maiden, they're thinking of um, they're thinking of different records, either because the other records are the one that put Iron Maiden on the map, or they're records that once Iron Maiden was on the map were the ones that they saw on tour, maybe. Um, and, and this one kind of came in, like you said, after one of the biggest tours the band ever did. Um, and I, I don't know why it is. Maybe it just maybe it just didn't, you know, it, maybe it didn't, and I'm saying this in air quotes for listeners, maybe it just didn't fit in that, you know, I mentioned Power Slave and Seventh Son of a Seventh Son both have this fantasy kind of theme to them. Mm-hmm. And then Here Comes Somewhere in Time, which has this, time history theme it just doesn't quite fit in the progression of those three records so maybe it was you know looked over a bit but how looked over the record went platinum like you said. yeah
0: i think what ended up happening uh, was that so this ended up being and i think to this day is their best-selling record i could be wrong so no one <laughs> quote me on that but it's like it feels like to fans it wasn't a fan favorite but it's like it hit everyone, you know? And also when you're sandwiched between like two other amazing records, yeah. I guess that's just what happens. Like <laughs> it is, it, I like it because it feels like an outlier, but sonically, you know, any of the stuff where I've talked about the sense and it, uh, they, they don't derail the record or really like heavily used, you know, they kind of fit, they fit, a lot with the theme of the record being like you know time travel you know kind of futuristic themes and you know the time travel thing seems to kind of weave into the history lessons and also I feel like Deja Vu kind of also ties into like time travel Uh and Uh whatnot so I but it but it's like when you look at the whole scope of their career (laughs) they've done history lessons they've done sci-fi now like their most recent record which I haven't spent a lot of time with it's like feudal japan yes totally. <laughs> it's like, Very interesting. you know so it's like they've done these type of things so now you know maybe i have hindsight behind me
1: no, it could know, be and, it. and one other thought that i had is that the records that put in my opinion that put iron maiden on the map certainly predated my time listening to them but uh, number of the beast and peace of mind seem to be the records that kind of old school metalheads turn to when they think of iron yeah. maiden right so and then that, and that doesn't just mean that people from that generation listen to them. We listen to those records too. Um, but I think that Number of the Beast and Peace of Mind put Iron Maiden on the map and 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 really were the, were, the, were the records that people turned to as band defining. And then the records which came later, you know, Power Slave, followed by this, followed by um, Seventh Son, were almost speaking to a different generation in a way. So I mean the band has, has played for so long that that maybe this record just spoke to, even though it was only a handful of years later, to a different generation of, of listeners. I'm not exactly sure, but to your point, I mean, it's sold, you know, m- you know however many copies, million copies or whatever it was, right? Five million, no. I have no idea. Um, so there's definitely people who love the record. I just think that when people think of Iron Maiden... Um, from generations ago. They think of those earlier records. Um, you know, Killers too, of course, but I think that Number of the Beast and, and Peace of Mind come to mind first and foremost for folks. And maybe this one just isn't at, at, at the forefront of everybody's mind because that next era of records, that chunk of those three, Power Slave and This and um, Seventh Son, just seemed to be this sort of block of records in a way. And this one was the standout sort of oddity amongst those uh, amongst those. Amongst those three, in a way. Yeah,
0: well, uh, I guess a question that: Have you ever met anyone that prefers Blaze over Bruce
1: Dickinson? That's a tough one. I I haven't, um, because I wouldn't talk to them anymore. uh, After, (laughs) (laughs) no, I'm kidding. I mean, Blaze, Blaze uh, has moments, you know. I mean, he had he had impossible shoes to fill. Impossible, impossible, (laughs) impossible shoes to fill. There's just no way. Um, but there, there are, there are at least one, if not two, tracks from the Blaze era that Iron Maiden still plays on tour. I think they play "The Klansman" is a Blaze song, yeah, right? Yeah,
0: that is a Blaze. Era um, song.
1: Yeah. And I'm trying to think if there's another one. Um, but you know, this guy, it, it, it's it's impossible. I mean, you know, I, I was in in Europe a couple years ago, and 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 Blaze was playing a club at which I'd been a couple weeks before there was a poster up for for Blaze and his band playing this you know 200 capacity club Right. And I Mm -hmm. just thought, my gosh, what what this guy actually has lived quite a charmed life, you know, from being just a guy to being an Iron Maiden and then clubbing and playing the songs that he wrote with Iron Maiden. That sounds so cool. And, you know, just to be able to go out and see your true to life fans, the people who are showing up who maybe preferred him or maybe didn't, but just want to hear these songs in clubs for the rest of your life. Like what if you. You could say, "Oh yeah, the songs that I wrote from Iron Maiden, my band's just going to cover those songs forever now." Who gets to say that? So, yeah, even even if he isn't the the, the overall fan favorite, um, shout out to uh, to, to Blaze Bailey for um, just charging forward in life and being in Iron Maiden. What a hero! Yeah,
0: I hope he has like that good of a perspective about it because I feel like you you easily could be a person. I mean, I probably would be. That's like. I, you know, I didn't cut it, but it's yeah. like, well, you didn't cut it against Bruce Dickinson. You know, it's like, it's, it's not, it's impossible. you know, if you could have the right perspective, like that's a gift I to, mean, like,
1: give somebody. If you told yeah. me that you got to be the assistant guitar tech to Adrian Smith one night at one show, I would ask you for your autograph. Okay. And Blaze <laughs> Bailey got to be in Iron Maiden and write songs that have an enduring legacy for fans and for the band. I mean, come on now. Like, and you're right though, that you know, this is not this is not a situation where he, he even <laughs> all respect due had a chance in terms of being compared. I mean, Bruce Dickinson's, you know, he's he's literally one of a kind, one of a kind as yeah. a human.
0: So just kind of thinking about it, uh, how do you feel like this album or Iron Maiden as a whole influenced you? As you know, like a songwriter, or just kind of joining bands with like you know Trial, and then even later, like how did it directly influence you?
1: Well, it, it influenced me quite a bit, and and I'll tell you how and why. When when Trial first formed, we we put out a couple seven inches, which were hardcore seven inches. And then we wanted to do something bigger and better, you know, as, as bands want to do as they put out an album. And in thinking about the album as a concept album, Tim um, had come to me with this idea. He said, what if all the songs were about our lives? And we wrote a, a record called Are These Our Lives, which each, each song being a you know, part of that. And I went, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And, and the reason I got excited about it was because, in part, of Iron Maiden you know, they had put out concept records. You can't listen to Iron Maiden and ignore the fact that there's full albums devoted to a feeling, an idea, as we've talked about, time, you know, with this record and, and, um, you know, some of the others we've mentioned as well. But it was was records like this, uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, and most importantly, Lou Reed's album, New York, that inspired the creation of Are These Our Lives, the trial album, at, at least insofar as you know, we, we took the idea of a theme and just ran with it from there because Lou Reed on the liner notes to the New York album said this album, and this isn't a direct quote, but it's, it's quite close. I think this album is intended to be listened to in one sitting as if reading a book or watching a movie. His intention was that you sat down, you hit play, you listened to the whole record, you absorbed it all as a piece of art, and then you stopped. So when we were working on the Trial album, that's what I thought of as well. I thought, okay, what if we could do the same thing? What if we could write a record with this idea of of are these our lives and each song being a facet of our lives? What if we could write a record that had that thematic just overtone to it and just infused into it? And Iron Maiden was a huge part of that. I mean, again, I, I, I came up listening to Seventh Son of a Seventh Son and... That album is infused with this, um, you know, thematic feel. And then, of course, records like 2112 by Rush were, were ins- inspirational as well. But, you know, we didn't <laughs> we didn't do as trial what Iron Maiden did when they said, let's write physical graffiti. We weren't <laughs> saying, let's write 2112. We were just like, uh, let's write a hardcore record. And we managed to write a record that had a theme right so it was a different different ball game entirely but the inspiration definitely was there and definitely came in part from iron maiden
0: i mean as a fan of that specific trial record i would say that you all succeeded i'm so glad I, i i love the theme of it you know like i feel like you know and like iron maiden i feel like it doesn't the theme of it doesn't weigh too heavily that I can't just enjoy it.
1: Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And I'll, I'll let Tim know that you said that because Tim is, uh, I'm going to say an even bigger Iron Maiden fan than I am. So, I mean, and I'm a pretty immense fan, but Tim's lived and breathed this stuff and, um, has stories of seeing them years and years ago. And, you know, during the scream for me, Long Beach kind of era. And definitely, definitely has been around the band for a very long time as well.
0: Yeah. And I know I've kept you, uh, long and it's like, if we even went into like the trial part of it or between earth and sky and like so much of your history with hardcore, um, we know we could be here for hours. So, so, you know, um, but what I guess I want to ask is I'm always curious, like how did being into hardcore, or maybe I'm not even asking the right question. Um, how did it get you into public speaking? That's that's always been like an interesting thing with like kind of looking at that shift. And I can yeah. see it with being a front man, obviously. But like, you know, I guess the quick uh, synopsis of how
1: that happened. Sure. Well, it, you are today. There's a direct connection between the two. And, and you're, you've, you've already landed on it. Is that being on stage for however many shows trial played, let's say 500 shows or something like that, and then a handful for Between Earth and Sky and other projects and whatnot, you get used to being in front of audiences again and again and again, which and who at times are unforgiving. Um, and you're at least in my case, I'm wanting to introduce the songs and explain a little bit about what they're about. Sometimes audiences are very receptive and very welcoming and other times people have the attitude of uh, less talk, more rock. Let's just start yeah. playing, you know? And over 500 shows, you deal with every possible situation of um, communicative dynamic in terms of speaking to an audience. Now, I've been in front of audiences as a a performer, speaker, and entertainer since I was very young, since I was 13 years old or or so. Um, So hardcore actually came into my life after um, being on stage, being a performer. And all throughout the years of being in hardcore bands, I've been on stage as a performer. But I'll I'll give you an actual case in point that this morning I gave a keynote presentation to a medical group. Today I'm in Portland, Oregon. and, And while being on stage in front of this medical group talking about ideas that I think were important to them, I got swept up in the energy of the moment and was talking about the idea of them taking the ideas that I've shared on stage and sharing them with others who weren't in the room. And I got swept up as if it was like a hardcore show while I was giving this keynote public speaking presentation. Well, where did that idea come from? The idea of, hey, let's just take what we feel in this room and, and, and break away, right? That's from Unrestrained, the trial song off of Are These Our Lives. And I used to introduce that song time and time again with that same rhetoric. So here I am on stage this morning, literally hours ago, speaking to a group of medical professionals, telling them the same things that I told audiences all over the world before we played Unrestrained, applying it to this group. Um, As I was saying this thing to this group this morning, I thought to myself, okay, easy does it, don't stage dive on the table here in the banquet hall. But there's a direct connection between the two, and and over the years as I've done spoken word performances or speaking within the um, just within just different countries and just whatever within the world, um, the stories that I've told on stage make their way into these public speaking presentations, and vice versa. There's times where I'll be speaking to a group of whomever it might be, and then I'll think to myself, the next time I'm in front of a you know punk audience or whatever it might be. Oh, that story might work here as well. There's a universality to the human experience or there are universalities to the human experience which uh, transcend the limitations of what kind of music we listen to and the venue we happen to be in when we encounter those ideas. So the the people who are at a, a concert, listening to a band, listening to a front person uh, are very similar in, in some Uh, in some basic ways to the audience who are sitting at banquet tables listening to a keynote speaker speak. There's a direct connection between the two, certainly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I super appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this. I mean, even that conversation, the public speaking conversation, the conversation about, you know, uh, veganism and straight edge, you know, things that are very important to me. Like, you know, we didn't get, we didn't get to have those conversations, but I'm happy about the one we had with Iron Maiden. So once again, I want to say, Thank you. And if, if people, uh, where can people find you? Sure, yeah.
1: I, they can find me um, easily on Instagram at Greg Bennick, just my name, G R E G B E N N I C K. Um, you can certainly, if you Google me, find me on the web website of the of the same name. Um, you know that's more you know professional site, but at the same time, it's not inherently so. People can always contact me there if they want, but I'm I'm easily accessible that way. Um, Twitter is the same, and I just want to say thank you for leading the conversation around Iron Maiden because there have been countless conversations about veganism and about straight edge and about hardcore. There have been precious few about Iron Maiden and this, when I got the request to do this, I was jumping up and down with excitement. I mean, this is fantastic, and that isn't to say that I don't want to speak about hardcore veganism, straight edge. But even just the way I'm saying that right now, like, eh, 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 I mean, we're talking about Iron Maiden yeah. today. Like, let's let's get real. Yeah. This is this is important stuff.
0: I assumed you had uh, you've spoken at links, you know, <laughs> veganism and straight edge. So, you know, um, yeah. So, so I, I I totally get it. So, once again, I thank you. Hey,
1: thank you. And people should feel free to be in touch anytime. I'd be happy to be in touch with any of your listeners anytime. And I look forward to that. And thanks for having me.
0: Welcome back. Thanks again to Greg for coming on the pod. It was a huge honor. I'm a big fan of trial. And honestly, Greg is just awesome dude to talk to. So go follow Greg on Instagram at Greg Benning. Okay, next time on the pod, we're talking with Keith Olry of the band Pogo and owner of New Granada Records and a great record store in Tampa called Microgroove. We talked about the 1987 album by Dag Nasty, Out at Danko's, one of my favorite albums ever. Once again, check out our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spinningoutpod. Lastly, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you do that sort of thing reviews definitely help or just simply tell a friend tell 10 friends tell 100 friends thanks as always to sarah blumenthal for editing the pod and pretty maddie for the theme okay see you next week